God has not called us to a comfortable life. He has called us to a challenging journey. The beauty is that God is with us. He that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. So he's able to help us to overcome challenges of life. The Profile with Premier Christianity Magazine. Hello, you're listening to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. This is the show where we like to meet a new guest each and every week and hear some of their life story, how they came to faith and what God is doing through their ministry today. I'm delighted to say that my guest on the show today is the Reverend Dr. Israel Oliphanjana. He is an ordained and accredited Baptist minister. He's led two multi-ethnic Baptist churches and an independent charismatic church. He's the founding director of Centre for Missionaries from the Majority World, which is a mission network initiative that encourages cross-cultural training to reverse missionaries in Britain. We'll delve into that in the interview today, but Israel is also the director of One People Commission from the Evangelical Alliance. He's also on the Christian Aid Working Group of Black Majority Church leaders who are exploring the intersection of climate justice and racial justice. So there's lots to chat about today, but Reverend Dr. Israel Oliphanjana, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to meet you. Thank you very much, Sam. Uh, a pleasure to be here today and look forward to the conversation we're going to have. Well, we always start here on the show by hearing about a person's early life. Um, so tell me a little bit about what life was like for you growing up. Where were you in the world? What was your family like? And uh, a bit about your childhood. So I grew up in Nigeria uh, because I'm from Nigeria. So born and bred Nigerian. And uh, I think I grew up in what would be best described as a polygamous family, which means my dad had two wives. Um, so I grew up in those kind of setting, which in itself has a lot of experience to unpack in that sense. But I, I grew up in uh, a state in Nigeria called Ibadan, uh, which has used to be possibly the second largest city in Africa after Cairo. But I think that probably has changed now. And, uh, you know, growing up there, um, I think life was tough and uh, difficult, uh, but it's also fair to say that my family will probably be regarded as middle-class Nigerians. Um, so while life was tough, it wasn't as bad as some of the things that I saw growing up around me in terms of some of my friends and some of my neighbors. So a kind of a mixture, I would say, uh, in that sense. Yeah. And can you give me an example of, of what was tough? And what I, I guess what it's like to be a middle class Nigerian, because myself, I, I don't know what that I don't know what that looks like. So tell me what that means. What what does tough look like in that kind of a setting? Yeah, so tough in those kind of settings simply means you have uh, sort of one different family structures. Uh, you know, I remember as I said, I grew up in a polygamous family. It simply means uh, my dad wasn't constantly around. And you see sort of similar pattern uh, with some other families around, either because the dad is working in another state, struggling to survive. Uh, and in that sense, uh, I, I know friends who, for them to be able to afford university fees, they have to work two or three jobs uh, to be able to do that because they are virtually nothing. And there are cases where people don't have food at all. Uh, you know, uh, virtually nothing and just rely 
on friends, neighbors, and families. Uh, for, for my own family, I think, um, as I said, we'll probably be regarded as middle-class Nigerians because my, my dad was the civil servant. And uh, if it were to be the UK equivalent of his work would be working for the DVLA as a senior officer because he was an automobile engineer. Uh, in that sense, and my mom was a businesswoman. She had various business uh, portfolios that she was working on in that sense. Uh, but that doesn't still mean life wasn't tough because uh, life was still tough yeah, to some extent. I remember my university fees before I could afford some aspects of that. My mom had to sell a car for me to go to university. Uh, so, so you can imagine the level yeah. of toughness and struggles, yeah. uh, but also we will be seen as the better ones sure. uh, in that respect. In that yes, and, and just tell me a, a bit more about, about that, that polyamorous relationship and, and what that kind of means. So is this a scenario where this was, this was open and known that your dad had two wives rather than a secret thing, I suppose? So it was very open. And I think anyone who understands African sort of traditional worldview will understand that there are certain parts of Africa that accept polygamy as a form of marriage uh, in that sense. So it's seen as part of the culture. It's seen as normal. In fact, in traditional times, if a man has more than one wife, it's a sign of wealth. It's a sign that you are able to look after families you are able to look after more than one woman as it is so it's a thing of pride in traditional times of course today things have changed and that's not it's not necessarily seen in that light but usually polygamous family are usually open uh the women involved will know it's not a secret affair uh or anything like that so my mom was fully aware of what was going on we were all aware all the kids know what was going on uh, it wasn't like you suddenly caught your dad doing something he wasn't supposed to do uh in that sense um so it, it it's a very open public thing because of the way it's seen or viewed by the culture uh in that sense and often what is also fascinating about that is uh from a christian perspective uh there are those who will even argue from the Old Testament and say, actually, this is a valid form of marriage. Looking at Abraham, looking at David, looking at Solomon. So, you you know, I, I've seen Christian advancing a kind of an argument based on that and say, actually, it, it's an accepted form of marriage, even in biblical times, and take their cue from there. Of course, there, there are different opinions. There are those who will definitely say, no, marriage should be monogamous. Uh, in that sense. So, but these are some of the, and again, what is interesting is when missionaries came from Europe to Africa, that's one of the areas they had to contend with right. because European missionaries didn't fully understand that. And some of them came with the idea of monogamous marriage is the best. So if before, if you become a Christian, you need to stop having more than one wife. And that created all sorts of problems uh, with the traditional life in the sense that, because if some of these women depend on the livelihood of the man as the backbone of the family, letting them go simply means you're probably putting them into poverty uh, and all sorts of things going on. So, so that created a lot of problems. Yeah. 
uh, in the past. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting example, isn't it, of where sometimes as Christians we come along with what might be true and certainly well-meaning theology, and we say, well, this is the way you should live, and th- that might be true, but it can have consequences, like you say, that we're not always aware of, especially where there are massive cultural differences so so tell me a bit about where faith came into the picture for you was your family a family that would make that kind of argument that well there were people in the old testament who had more than one wife therefore it's fine for us to you know was was there a kind of christian understanding in in the family growing up or, or not um so i think yeah there was that understanding uh but i would say leaning more into the traditional worldview that perhaps a christian argument in that sense so my family was christian uh, but I didn't make my own decision until later in my teens when I was 17. That was when I made my decision. So I, I followed my mom to church as a good African boy will do. You dare not argue with your mom uh, when it comes to church. You just follow and you go to Sunday school and everything. So I did that. Um, but I, you know, I just follow mom as everyone does. But uh at just before 17 i had kind of like a crisis that led to my faith in the sense of um uh in my secondary school education i had to repeat one of the years and the educational system in nigeria is such that if you do all the exams and the test if you fail you have to repeat the year you are not just pushed along for anything and i remember that happened to me a lot of times in in uh, primary school and then secondary school. So I had that experience and it was a case of, this is kind of shame because I'm going to be in class with my juniors who uh, look up to me in various ways. You know, I I was one of these cool, trendy boys in my secondary school. So being in class with juniors was just something I couldn't really uh, handle at that time. So basically I left school and I started going to a kind of a, taking extra lessons outside school, go to like a private tutoring kind of thing. But it simply means that I was isolated from a group of friends and stuff like that. And that really led to a kind of a soul-searching experience, uh, you know, just being isolated from friends. And I, I just I started attending a Pentecostal church, uh, not far from my church, uh, not far from my home back then, started attending and just uh, you know, at, in that sense, and found faith there uh, at a watch night service. Uh, you know, as you're about to cross into the new year, you know, Africans are very big on watch night services. Uh, it's kind of key. And so, I've, you know, at that time, and you know, found myself just asking God different questions. And I felt God saying to me, yeah, it's time to make this decision and made that decision. And since then, it's been up and down <laughs> and that was a fantastic journey and a journey worth going on. Amazing. And um, it, it, it's, it's, it's so often the case, isn't it, that those who grow up in whatever background in their teenage years will have often quite a dramatic kind of moment where they say, no, I'm actually going to choose to make this faith my own. Um, I was speaking to someone recently who used that famous phrase that God has no grandchildren, you know, that that all of us have to make a decision, even if our parents do have a faith, all of us have to make a a decision for ourselves at some point. And so for you, that came at the age of 17. And and you say it's been up and down since then, but I guess your faith has continued. Has there been any moments of kind of real crisis or doubt since then where you've kind of been tempted to to go completely the the opposite way or or not? Yeah. Oh, there's been various attempts. I mean, one thing I should have mentioned earlier is actually 
1993, that was the first time I make my decision to follow uh, Jesus. Uh, but that didn't really last long. Uh, and the reason why that didn't really last long was because of partying, you know, going to parties, have different girlfriends, and it was kind of like tempting. Uh, I even remember, you know, giving my life to Christ, friends laughing at me and say, oh, here's this guy who's just said he's become a Christian and still going to parties and stuff like that. So it was really difficult. So kind of backslide. Uh, as it were, and then came to faith again in 1995. So that was kind of like the first temptation, uh, you know, the teenage years of just uh, embracing pleasure, but at the same time trying to fuse Christianity into that. That really didn't work. But in 2001, um, my dad passed away, and that, that was a really key moment for me uh, in, in the sense that... It, you know, even though, as I said earlier, dad had two wives and, uh, we, I mean, he was a loving father, caring father, uh, loved the family, provided for us, uh, you know, in that sense. And so when he passed away, it was a shock uh, to the system. But at the same time, a kind of a different realization that God is my ultimate father. And I remember at the funeral of my dad, uh, you know, I remember my siblings all crying their eyes out. I really didn't cry because I, because being the last child, I had a different experience uh, from my other siblings in that sense. So I didn't really cry. It was late, but I had a really massive headache from not crying because of just think overthinking everything. But I remember a few days after I was listening to uh, a song by Don Moen, uh, our father who was in heaven. And I was just crying profusely. Uh, couldn't really hold myself back. I uh, was just crying. There was no one in the house, just crying. Myself. And there was a kind of a sudden realization and a revelation at the same time that God is the ultimate father, that even though your dad, your earthly father is now gone, but actually I am your father. And I think that really deepened my relationship with God uh, from that time till now that I believe I have a kind of a special covenant relationship with God. I know as believers, we all do, but I feel I have a particular covenant relationship with God, uh, seeing God as my father uh, who will guide me, look after me, and then in return, I will serve him faithfully with everything that I do and everything that I have. Uh, and I think that has been the case since then. Uh, so that, that was a key uh, and a trying moment uh, at the same time, uh, you know, in that sense. A recent one uh, will be sort of during the pandemic. Uh, you know, during the pandemic, you know, a lot of people lost their friends, families to the pandemic and stuff. For myself and my wife, it, it was a kind of a different kind of loss. We, we lost the baby during the pandemic. And again, it was a trying moment. It was a trying time, uh, you know, especially in the pandemic, very difficult. Uh, but God brought us through. And, uh, you know, my wife got pregnant again, and now we have a six-month-old daughter. Um, so, yeah, so I, I think Christianity is about up and down, really. Yes. Uh, it's not um, one straight line yeah. uh, in that sense. So I, I think, yeah, trials will come, temptations will come. But uh, through those periods, through those experiences, our faith grows as well. Yeah, well, th thank you for thank you for sharing that, and I think it's so important that we do acknowledge that as Christians that 
it's not that when we become a Christian, everything is just easy. And and I don't know about you, but sometimes I get slightly frustrated when I meet Christians and say, how are you? And they're, oh, I'm, I'm great. I'm always great. Everything's always fantastic. I just think you're not being real, are you? You know, life life isn't like that. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I, I think the Christian journey is an exciting one. I, I think God invites us. Uh, it's not, it, you know, it's not saying that we will we will be comfortable all the time. God has not called us to a comfortable life. He has called us to a challenging journey, uh, but one that is worth going on because the, the beauty is that God is with us. And, uh, you know, he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. So he's able to help us to overcome challenges of life, difficulties that we might face in that sense. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, obviously we've been talking a lot about um, Nigeria and your upbringing, but of course right now you don't live in Nigeria, you live in the UK and I know you have done for some time. Is the UK now considered home or would you say you have two homes? How does that, how does that figure out? Yes, I have adopted the UK as my home as a missionary from Nigeria. Um, so I see part of my story as that of a reverse missionary, uh, someone that God has called and sent to the UK to come and help uh, in terms of building God's kingdom and mission in this part of the world. Uh, so I came in 2004, uh, came to do a postgraduate uh, degree in theology. But at the same time, my church uh, commissioned and sent me to come and help uh, plant a church in the UK. Uh, so, uh, you know, that, that's why I came in 2004. And uh, yeah, U UK is home now. Uh, initially, it felt strange, of course. And, uh, and it's been a journey to understand the context and yes. to understand how different this is from Nigeria. What were the sort of culture shocks that happened for you and I guess for other people who moved from Nigeria to somewhere like the UK? What are the, what are the things that I, as a Brit, think is completely normal, but for you coming here, think that's not normal, that's a, that's a strange British thing? I think one of the culture shocks when I came in is because uh, in Nigeria you could talk to almost anyone anywhere because the culture is just that way. You can strike conversations easily. You don't necessarily have to know everyone's name to be able to do that. You can just talk to someone on the public transport. In fact, it will be conceived as strange if you don't talk on public transport. And so you can imagine the shock coming to London where people try to just avoid each other <laughs> and just try to not have conversations at all. And here was I just landed freshly and want to strike conversations with people sitting next to me. But what was even interesting was that I couldn't even read the body language at that time to tell that people were not really interested. I just couldn't read it because I haven't been here that long to be able to sure. understand that. Uh, you know, it was until later, my sister who, who she, she grew up here. I mean, she was born uh, in the UK and came, went to Nigeria, but came back later. She said, oh no, you, you, you don't talk to people on the public transport. It's just, <laughs> it's just an unspoken culture an unspoken rule that you just don't do that. So that's one of the culture shocks in that sense. And also, I remember attending some few churches and just realizing that, because, it, I mean, the church I attended in Nigeria, when you don't see, when you don't see someone, we even have what we call a follow-up team, where you follow up on people who have just started attending the church, or if you don't see someone, 
for maybe a few weeks, you find out what's going on. So I remember one of the churches I was attending, an English church, there were some people I didn't see. I'm just calling up just to see how they are. And it was almost like, you know, people just become defensive sometimes. Like, oh, what, what, what were you trying to find out? Kind of, it's just like, yeah, just, you just went on in church. So I'll just uh, find out why everything okay, that kind of stuff. So again, that, that was kind of strange, uh, trying to understand that, uh, that people might not go to church for months and that was seen as okay. For me, that wasn't okay. Uh, you, you know, so it was a culture shock yeah. in that sense. So, yeah. so those are just some of the culture I'm sure shock. there's many, many more. Yeah, absolutely. So you've you've since then had experience um, leading a number of different churches here in the UK. And I, I wanted to talk a bit about how that works, where you have a, have a multi-ethnic congregation, which of course is increasingly the case, not just in London, but many parts of the UK, and is, is also something that many churches would desire. Certainly, I speak to a lot of church leaders who say, if your church is in an area which is racially diverse, you would want the church to be racially diverse as well. And they would point to certain scriptures. So there's a real desire, I suppose, to bring people with different cultures and backgrounds and ethnicities together in one church. But even if there's the desire, it's not always straightforward or easy because we are working with different cultures. So what are some of the things that you've learned through ministering in that kind of a setting and a scenario on how you how you do that, how you build a multi-ethnic church and do it well? Yeah, I think a lot of, as you said, a lot of people definitely, a lot of leaders I speak to and church leaders definitely desire, uh, whether it's a white church leader, a black church leader, Asian or Latin American or South Korean or Chinese, there is always that desire and that, you know, that that passion that people want to have a multicultural church. But sometimes those desires, they don't translate to intentionality and the hard work. What many people don't realize is that to develop a multicultural church is hard work. You have to constantly be learning. You have to constantly be relearning what you think you know. Because, I mean, the way Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2 is that the Gentile and the Jews coming together to becoming one, we, we, we come together to create almost totally something new. And so when you're developing a multicultural church, you are creating something totally new that doesn't really exist before because each context is different. And each particular people attending your church come with a particular certain experience that will reconfigure that particular local church. So you are creating something new that doesn't really exist before. And so you you are working where you might have some principles and some guidelines to work with. Ultimately, what you will be doing in that local context will be different from another church somewhere else. And so it is hard work. And so a lot of people find that the homogeneous unit principle uh, works better where you can have a white church leader leading a white church or you have uh, a Nigerian leading a Nigerian church. Many find that much more easier to do. Uh, in that sense. So intentionality is very key in terms of thinking, in terms of strategy, and in terms of action in that sense. And I think the other challenge we also have is sometimes people see conversations around multiculturalism as political correctness. And I think for the church, we have to move away from understanding that God has a vision of a multi-ethnic kingdom that we see through the pages of scripture from Genesis through to Revelation. Uh, The fact that God created one humanity 
but that humanity is expressed with different skin pigmentation, uh, different physical features. And the fact that we end in revelation with this vision uh, of different tribes, uh, language, and people, it's a sign of God's multi-ethnic kingdom. In fact, the fact that God chose the day of Pentecost to birth his church, again, signaled that intention uh, because you have different Jews congregating, diaspora Jews, as well as Jews who were born in Israel, congregating together on that particular day. So we have to catch that vision. That vision, we have to catch it and then begin to work how we implement it uh, in our various local contexts in that sense. Uh, but the challenge is that intentionality crossing from just that desire or moving away from even almost a kind of a window dressing to the really hardcore issues. Uh, because oftentimes people think, oh, once we have one Black person on our leadership team, we've taken diversity box. No. It, it, I'm afraid that's the starting point. Uh, it's not the success story we want to be singing that we have one ethnic minority on our board or council. That's good, but it's the introduction. It's not the end story we should be celebrating. How can we replicate that over and over again, over a period of time to be consistent? And also how can we replicate that in our various governing structures, in our church trustees, in our diaconate, in our worship team? What does that look like? And do we have visible representation of people of color in our church? Uh, it's not okay to have people of color serving in Sunday schools and serving tea and coffees and not having them leading worship or having them preach or having them engage in visible aspect of the church, uh, it, it's not good enough. Uh, so these are some of the challenges. Uh, and I think at times when people put uh, the cost together, it's like, oh, this is great. <laughs> and at times people shy away from that. So much is shallow these days. Pictures, but not words. Texts that seem impersonal. Tweets rather than conversation. It can leave us all feeling rather empty. At Premier Christianity, we go deeper to bring you a thought-provoking and credible mix of theological articles, biblical interpretation, interviews, debates, and trends. Premier Christianity, online, in print, in depth. Subscribe today at premierchristianity.com. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. My guest on the show today is Israel Olafanjana from the Evangelical Alliance. We're having a wide-ranging conversation on all that Israel is up to, some of his past experience ministering in a multiracial context, his upbringing in Nigeria, and what it was like to grow up in a family where his father was polyamorous. Lots to talk about today with Israel. So here is the second part of our conversation. I do hope you enjoy it. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales, and this is my conversation with Israel Olafanjana. And obviously these sorts of conversations, I know for, for plenty of people, have been ongoing for years. But I think there was also a turning point two years ago now with the, the death of George Floyd. Certainly I noticed that from that point you had church leaders who perhaps weren't involved in the, the conversation you've just been exploring 
suddenly be- suddenly became aware of it or became aware of the need to change. Uh, I remember a lot of church leaders making pledges about some of the things you've just said about diversity within leadership teams, for example, because there was a sense of kind of awakening, I think, certainly for a lot of white church leaders to realise, wow, the, you know, the issue of racism actually, you know, affects you know, pretty much every black person in my congregation, I might have been completely unaware of that until the the kind of public national converse, international conversation around George Floyd kind of kickstarted some of that. So the question I wanted to ask you was, how have things changed from your perspective in the last two years? Because I, a certain number of pledges and promises were made. Do you think church leaders have followed through on that? Do you think we're moving in the right direction? Do you think we're making progress? Um, or are there areas that we're in danger of overlooking or misunderstanding still in this conversation? I think, yes, since the death of George Floyd, we have made some progress, but there are still some concerns and worries. I think the death of George Floyd really opened people's eyes to the fact that we are not post-racial, because I think before the death of George Floyd, I think there was just this notion uh, that well, we're really making progress on this front. And so we are kind of post-racial. And I think that really knocks us back to think, okay, uh, what is going on here? And uh, and I think what is interesting is that I I think the death of George Floyd opened, as I like to say, it kind of opened a wound that was never really healed around these conversations. And so we find ourselves suddenly, and people suddenly realize that their theological training was inadequate. And people suddenly realized that they have not really taken this conversation serious. And so we now begin to see the gaps that we have. And so people are responding uh, in in that sense and some progress were made, uh, but at the one year anniversary of George Floyd, I was sort of observing and just taking notes around who is still working on this, who who are still speaking publicly. And I was kind of really disappointed uh, because it kind of felt, it felt like some people just tick that box as an exercise that we've kind of paid lip service to racial diversity and then it's just time to move on. But I'm also aware that, of course, the pandemic has made life really very difficult for people. So maybe on the scales of priority, Uh, Churches are trying to survive uh, because of the pandemic and the economic, financial, social uh, survival aspects of that. I totally understand that pastors have a lot to worry and to contend with more than ever before. But nevertheless, few people only spoke, particularly white church leaders, at the one-year anniversary of George Floyd. And I was kind of really disappointed at that uh, because it just felt that it, it was just a brief moment of things uh, in, in that sense. Uh, and I think some people are making progress, uh, but I, I think the gaps that has really been exposed, they need to be addressed in terms of what are the kind of theological education that we need for church leaders, because they are the gatekeepers. And so if church leaders are not really equipped on this front, then surely our churches will not be able to make progress on this in that sense. But also, we had that momentum with the George Floyd, but then the civil report really halted 
that conversation to some extent. Uh, and I'm not saying everything about the sewer report is terrible. <laughs> uh, it's yeah, just, some just to remind people, this was the this was the government government report, wasn't it? Um, yeah, the government report on uh, you know race uh, on the race commission on ethnic disparity in the UK cred, as the acronym is. Uh, and I think the report has some solid 24 recommendations, which is fantastic. And there is a government response to that called Inclusive Britain, which now has 75 action points to take forward for anyone who wants to look into those. Um, but nevertheless, the fact that such a report, which people felt will help us to move forward, started to paint a kind of a picture that institutional racism or structural racism we need to be very careful how we use the term uh, because there's not enough evidence to suggest such things. I think in the words of Doreen Lawrence, Stephen Lawrence's mom, that this really could set us back 20 years on racial justice work. And I think that is true because it kind of gave an excuse to those who don't really want to engage this conversation that what's the fuss about really? Why do we need to have this conversation? And I think the other concerns and worry is how somehow this conversation we have kind of been distracted, or should I say, a kind of a wrong focus on Black Lives Matter and critical race theory. So again, there is so much zooming in into that to the extent that almost any conversation you want to have around this, people simply label you as woke or saying things such as, oh, this is critical race theory. Uh, you know, I mean, I wrote an article uh, around discipleship suffering and racial justice, something like that. And someone commented that, oh, this is critical race theory. I didn't even mention the word critical race theory in the article. And uh, so you, you, you find this kind of almost a kind of a defensive mechanism that people mirror and zoom in on critical race theory and Black Lives Matter. Whereas we should be focusing on how do we address these conversations yes. together. I've noticed something similar, as you say, which is that if you if you try and take any kind of position that might suggest we've still some work to do on the issue of racism, there, there are those who just write it off as this is wokeism, this is critical race, all these sort of buzzwords, which, as you say, aren't always very well understood. I mean, I think a lot of the people who, who use that term critical race theory in an accusatory way probably never looked at the actual academic meaning of that because you know it's an academic term at the end of the day critical race theory people do entire phds on such they're not, it's not a simple idea but i think it, it it gets boiled down to a simple word like woke or, or crt that people just like to throw at one another which as you say seems like a a really awful distraction because you know i i guess the hope would be certainly as the church that we can have some rational well-reasoned um, conversations that actually move us forward rather than chucking stones and and, and this, the danger I suppose is you end up with a very polarized world where either you have to buy into some of the extremes which do exist in the CRT world or you have to say there's no issue at all whereas you would hope that most rational thinking people would say there's, there's there must be some room in the middle here where actually you know we, we don't we don't sort of cry racism at literally every single thing that happens but neither do we say there's no issue at all is that the kind of middle point that you think we need to be striving for? Yeah, I think we need conversation across the board. Uh, you, you know, you rightly noted and pointed out that people definitely need to nuance more conversations around CRT. I think a question people don't often ask is, why does it exist in the first place? And I think that question is so crucial 
to even if you don't agree with all the arguments about CRT, it's so crucial to just understand in what context did CRT develop in the late 70s and 80s in the United States? Why? Why did it come after the civil rights movement, after that high peak of level of engagement? And then CRT came at the back of that. Why? It's usually very crucial. Uh, to, 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 to ask those kind of questions. Uh, and then again, the resurgence of Black Lives Matter, it didn't, people, some people think it emerged during 2020, but again, Black Lives Matter started 2016. And oftentimes people ignore that and think, oh, this is just something that emerged during the pandemic. No, it didn't. Uh, why do these things exist? Could it just be because there is something wrong somewhere? And these conversations or this theory or this movement or whatever we want to label it, they are trying to speak into this area in that sense. What I find fascinating is that for, for, for us as Christians, looking at our theology, uh, it, it baffles me sometimes that actually we have not done enough theological thinking around racial justice. Uh, you know, when I look at British scholarship, theological scholarship on this, sometimes it is really found wanting uh, in, in this area. Uh, and so where do you look for resources to engage those kind of conversations? Yes, we have to look at scripture. Uh, and I think that that's from an evangelical standpoint, that that is where we kind of have to look at things. We spoke to Professor Robert Beckford recently, who I don't think would identify as an evangelical, but he was certainly from a Pentecostal background. And he made the point, he's been making the point for some time. There are more books written by British theologians on animals than there is on racism. Uh, and it's you hear something like that, you think, wow, OK, we, we do we clearly I, th I think every right thinking individual would say that's not right. You know, there's there's a, a crazy imbalance there that we'd be more concerned about the theology of our pets than we would our brothers and sisters of a different skin color. I think Robert has noted that and is rightly so, uh, uh, you know, that statement, you could say it's true to something. I'll give you an example to actually illustrate that better. Um, you probably remember the incident when a footballer mistreated his pet, you know, his cat that was in the news a uh, few months back. And that was a topic of conversation, national conversation. I remember because I watched Question Time, it was even made it to Question Time. Now, fast forward a little, there's an incident that happened during the pandemic of a child we now call Child Q a 15-year-old black girl that was stripped search in Southeast London. Now, that made some conversations, that made some headlines, but I was looking at question time. It didn't come up once. Interesting, is it? There are conversations around someone mistreat, and I'm not saying the person, I'm not saying we should mistreat our pets, please. I don't want people to misunderstand. <laughs> I love pets and I love dogs <laughs> in particular, so I need to be clear. Uh, I'm a pet lover, but I couldn't but help notice that there seems to be more passion on that than child Q. In fact, my argument is that when George Floyd died, one of the defensive mechanisms was, oh, that took place in America, not in Europe. Now, I'm saying to people, child Q is our own George Floyd. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to reflect more on that. Where is the state of Britain on racial justice conversation? If that can happen, in 21st century Britain of a child 
being mistreated like that, then surely we have a long way to go. And how does the church speak into those kind of situation? How is the church equipped to begin to engage those sort of conversations? Uh, they are important things we need to be talking about. Yes. Today. And do you have any um, practical ideas or suggestions on 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 how we do this? Because I guess we've spoken quite a lot about some of the theory, which is important. But if I could just boil this down to practical you know, someone might be listening to this. They're not a church leader. They just go to their local church. They care about these issues. Where is a good starting point for having these conversations and actually making changes on a, on a kind of local level? Um, what do we need to do differently? Is this a is this a small group program? Is this I don't know a preaching series? There are various things you could suggest. But are, are, do you have any practical ideas on how we can take some of this important conversation and theory that we're having now and actually apply it on a local level? I think at the local church level, what churches can begin to do, and of course, I'm aware that there are different kinds of churches, but what churches can begin to do is to have these conversations. So uh, I'm an advocate of believing the only way racial justice will become really integrated into our framework is to see it as a discipleship issue. So what does that mean? We, we need to talk about it. Our house groups are a key place. So can we, uh, in our Bible study series, in our cell groups, in our house groups, whatever name we call them, in our various small groups, can we look at this as a subject, look at the various aspects of it? Uh, and I would suggest this to any church, including even a white majority church in a village that doesn't have a single person of color in it. And the reason why I won't even suggest that is because just because you don't have a person of color in your church doesn't mean this does not concern you. Because I think what you will be saying to your congregation if you do something like that is that actually this, this subject is very important and it's biblical. We need to talk about it. So that is very important. And so can our house group, for example, look at the book of Ruth? and just explore situations and conversations around asylum seekers, refugees, and migration, which is, again, another you know, topical issue, especially when you consider the Nationality and Borders Bill and the whole deal with Rwanda. You know, can we look? That's, that's like four chapters there. Can we look at that in our preaching series just to explore? What does it mean to be an asylum seeker uh, from the Book of Ruth? How does that look like today? And even we mustn't forget that even Christian theology from the New Testament describes all Christians as migrants. Peter, James, they all describe us as diaspora. You know, they, they use language such as we are aliens, we are strangers in this world, to the exiles that are scattered. And when you look at the kind of terms, the Greek terms that are used, it talks about a kind of a diaspora effect that we are scattered above. Uh, you know, the understanding is that earth is actually not our home. The kingdom of heaven to come is actually our home. So we are migrants on earth. So if Christian theology sees all Christians as migrants, what should our thinking and theology be around these issues in the church? So as Christians, we will have a more invested issue to think around this and to help our congregation to think about this through Bible study, through preaching series. Can we write songs around some of these issues? You know, our liturgy, can they be weaved our prayers around some of these issues uh, in that sense?
Hey, this is Sam. Really hope you're enjoying this conversation right here on the Profile Podcast today. Could you do me a favour right now? It will take you just two seconds to give us a rating and a review wherever you found this podcast. Just a couple of seconds to give us a rating is so, so helpful. It helps other people to discover the show as well. So if you could do that, we would so appreciate it. Well, we haven't yet spoken um, about your job role at the Evangelical Alliance. I said at the beginning, you're involved in the One People Commission. I suppose some of the things we've, we've spoken about already touch upon your role. But do you want to explain, explain a little bit about what that means and your work at the EA and, and how that relates to some of the topics we've been speaking about in terms of racial justice? So the One People Commission of the Evangelical Alliance uh, is uh, the best way to describe it is it mirrors the EA's work around unity and ethnic and cultural diversity. Uh, it was something that started somewhere in between 2012, 2013. Uh, it started as a, you know, a kind of a prophetic challenge from the Black church to EA that EA needs to represent the breath of British Christianity. And so the former director, Steve Clifford, took the challenge and they really set up One People Commission. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, being the current director, my priorities are around three areas, really. I'm looking at intercultural church unity. I'm looking at intercultural church and I'm looking at intercultural justice. In a nutshell, I'm looking at unity, I'm looking at integration and I'm looking at justice uh, in, in that sense. I'm looking at how to help different organizations at the national level uh, to have a kind of an intercultural conversation and how we can help each other. At the local level, I'm trying to help churches to develop an intercultural church that can truly express in leadership and everything we do, a multi-ethnic church. Uh, and then the intercultural justice aspect is just to begin to look at what racial justice look like, not only from a black and white perspective, but also from a Chinese, from a South Korean, uh, from a Latin American perspective, what does racial justice look like? And how can we begin to uh, talk around some of these issues? Uh, but at the heart of One People Commission is relationship. Uh, you know, it's a network. And, and I really love the network because it brings together different aspects of the church. Your, you know, your black majority churches, your South Korean churches, South Asian churches, Latin American churches, Chinese churches. So the breadth of diversity, it's huge and it's really encouraging. Uh, and so at the heart of it is relationship uh, so that we can all work together. And unity is a big part of what we do. I mentioned at the beginning that you're also involved in Christian aid and exploring the intersection of racial justice with climate justice. Now, I wanted to dig into this a little bit because, I do correct if I'm wrong, but I have read in the past that, um, especially among Pentecostals, there isn't always so much concern or certainly campaigning on an issue like climate change. But I know it has been argued, um, that, and I know Christian Aid would argue this, that climate change disproportionately affects poorer communities and will often affect the kind of communities that the Pentecostals have come from, certainly Black Pentecostals have come from in, in parts of Africa. So do you want to dig into that a little bit more for us? And especially this issue that actually, still for a lot of Christians, climate change is not really on their radar or not really seen as something that's of, of primary concern. The conversations around climate within the Christian landscape, again, is another fascinating one, uh, you know, because some see it as this is just politics. 
I don't really see why the church should get involved in this. Let's just leave that for the government. There is such attitudes that we see, uh, but there is also a lot of aspects of the church that are engaging, like your Church of England and other traditions like Baptist and even Charismatics are engaging. I, I, I think Black Pentecostals have been very late to come to this conversation. And I think perhaps for various reasons, one is perhaps the theology that has been espoused, uh, that sort of dichotomized faith uh, from those kind of big narratives. Uh, And I think there's no way you're gonna read scripture. Uh, Creation theology furnishes us with an understanding to engage climate justice. Uh, it's very key. It's very important. Because when we look at creation theology, you know, God created this world. And because he created it, that tells me that he really cares about it. Paul even went as far as to tell us in Romans chapter 8, when we start talking about recreation, that God is going to save humanity, but he's also going to redeem the cosmos. We see those kind of implications. And so what we are talking about as a significant theology in scriptures uh, in that sense. Now, when it comes to Black Pentecostals, I think, yes, this disproportionately affect the diaspora churches because of their home countries. I mean, I come from Nigeria, where I've seen the devastation of climate firsthand, because the part of Nigeria I grew up in, uh, flooding was a constant occurrence, destroying businesses, homes, livelihood. In fact, I used to walk home from school with friends thinking, oh, uh, flooding was a normal thing until I grew up later, realized that actually that was the impact of the climate we were suffering. Uh, You know, there are times it will rain heavily and I will be crying my eyes out as a young boy uh, with my mom just trying to encourage me that all will be well. So I've really lived through the impact of this in that sense. But yet African and Caribbean churches, we have been slow to really engage this. And so that work with Christian Aid was just to really begin to resource uh, black majority churches to really to engage, uh, mobilize, uh, and help them to go on this journey. Uh, the sub, one of the surveys that we did really begin to map things out that actually a lot of black Christians are passionate about this. Uh, uh, you know, as opposed to maybe what the narrative might be saying, they are actually really passionate, and they are looking for their leaders to take a lead on this, to begin to speak out on this in that sense. And again, the angle that we are coming to this is just looking at how, again, this connects with racial justice conversation. Because oftentimes, when I look at Western approaches to climate justice issues, uh, the best way I can describe it is, it looks like a green agenda. Let's save our green spaces. Let's save, uh, let's do conservation of uh, animals that are the verge of extinction. Uh, let's conserve and preserve our world, our desert spaces, which is very important. But how about a brown agenda that situates the climate conversation in looking at the ecological degradation and the climate impact on people of color? Uh, And that is where the race and the climate really comes together. When you begin to look at who are disproportionately impacted is your people in Pakistan, in Nigeria, in Ghana, in Kenya, in the Caribbeans, in that sense. But usually the advocates are white Westerners. And I think we need to correct that in balance uh, to begin to speak. Hence, this sort of a group with Christian aid is very significant to have faith leaders speaking uh, into those sort of issues. 
that's fascinating watch this space for more i suppose on that and um it, just, just as we wrap up um what would you say to the uk church certainly the white majority church that you you would love them to learn from their brothers and sisters in somewhere like nigeria and what would you say to the church in nigeria or to black majority churches that you think they could learn from from kind of white majority church culture. Now, of course, I need to give the, the important um, aside to that, which is what I said earlier, but I recognize plenty of church leaders would want to build multi-ethnic congregations. I'm not trying to further divide us, but I am acknowledging that actually, certainly in many parts of, of the UK, you will have black majority churches, you'll have white majority churches. And, and are there, are there I don't know, theology or practice from either side that, 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 that we can learn from one another as we begin to talk to each other more? What would you hope either, because the sad truth is there is still a racial divide. And while that racial divide is there, how can we learn from the other side of that divide and, and how can that bring us closer together? So does anything practical come to mind for black majority churches to learn from white majority churches and vice versa? One of the key things I think white Western churches can learn from majority world churches or black majority churches is around issues around suffering and lament. I think it's very key. Now, the pandemic, which is global, has really opened our eyes to the nature of suffering in various contexts. But one of my contended arguments is that those of us who come from the majority world, because of the historic uh, injustices around enslavement and slavery, we are constantly suffering. It's just a constant thing uh, because of that layer of context. Uh, and I think there's something about lament and suffering that I think we can learn for our discipleship models for this particular season, which I believe our discipleship model for this particular season needs to really integrate the theology of suffering and lament into it. And I think that's one area. And I think to illustrate that even better, you know, there was a national day of reflection organized by Black majority churches in Birmingham uh, this match, which sort of brought different Christians together just to have a service of lament because of the impact of the pandemic uh, on the Black community. Uh, and I think that was a service that is very useful and something that we can learn. Now, in terms of what uh, Black Christians or folks from the majority world can learn uh, from white Westerners, I think there are several things we can learn, uh, but just to draw to one or two, I, I think one of the things we can learn is around that environmental justice. Again, something that I think uh, the white Western church has taken lead on in that sense. That is something we can learn because I still feel that sometimes our black brothers and sisters are still very slow to engage that conversation. And I think that's something we can learn. The passion that some white Christians bring to that conversation is really commendable. Uh, and I think it's one that we can learn from and we can work together as allies, collaborate together. Uh, because at the end of the day, this is about God's kingdom on earth, isn't it? It's not about my kingdom or your kingdom or your people, my people. It's about our people together, God's people. Uh, and I believe in those sort of African worldview and thinking that I am because you are the Ubuntu philosophy that talks about our, our interdependence. Uh, so we do need each other to be able to survive in this season. If there's anything the pandemic has taught us is that we definitely do need that interdependence. 
You have been listening to the Profile Podcast. Really hope you enjoyed that chat with Israel Olofanjana from the Evangelical Alliance. If you did enjoy that conversation, we would so appreciate it if you could just take 20 seconds to give us a rating and a review wherever you found this podcast. It helps other people to discover the show. And don't miss our back catalogue as well. If you have a scroll down through previous episodes, you'll find interviews with the likes of Joyce Mayer, Martin Smith, Dan Walker, Sir Cliff Richard, Heidi Crowter, Christine Kane. Mark Sayers, and so many more. And if you do enjoy interviews like this, you are sure to love Premier Christianity magazine. Premier Christianity is the UK's leading Christian magazine. We publish each and every month in print and every day online. If you would like a print and digital subscription, you can get it right now from just £4.95 a month. Take advantage of that special offer right now at premierchristianity.com. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.